Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Chris Paulette. I'm an editor here at How Stuff Works, and sitting next to me is writer Jonathan Strickland. Howdy. And we're virtually, uh, virtually next to you. Yes, we're of course uh, talking to you from the wonderful sunny beach, right. uh, where the waves are are lapping up against the shore. Very tranquil environment. You know, lots of nice cold tropical drinks. Nice speedo, by the way. Thanks. Uh, you know, I'm 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 far more buff than uh, than I may appear in real life. Yeah, that's the beauty of virtual reality. Yeah, yeah, I'm virtually happy. Nice. Okay, so we are obviously going to be talking about virtual reality today. Yes. Um, and you might wonder what the heck happened to virtual reality. You know, it's funny. You brought this up. And Jonathan said he wanted to talk about virtual reality. And I started thinking, uh, you know, what happened to that? Because, you know, it was all the rage. People used to talk about it all the time. And now we weren't. And uh, I said, Jonathan, what do you want to talk about, about virtual reality? He said, what happened to it? And I went, oh, well, there you go. There That's you go. exactly what I was wondering. So – so let's give you some background. Uh, virtual reality, the, the concept, uh, um, though not the term, the concept has been around for many decades. Uh, back in 1965, uh, a man by the name of Ivan Sutherland wrote a proposal called The Ultimate Display. And he was kind of making a theoretical uh, display that would be, you know, what he, he considered to be the, the ultimate in computer displays. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously – by the title. Uh, <laughs> that's just a little repetitive redundancy for you. Yes. Let me reiterate. Okay. Okay. So anyway, the ultimate display. Now, his his concept was that the display would show a virtual world that would be um, as real to the user as the physical world the user was actually in. Right. So there would be no way to tell the difference between the virtual world and the physical world from uh, from just from your experience in it. Um Although the two could, the two could differ physically, like you could make a virtual world on the moon, for example. Right. But to the, the, the important thing is, is that to the user, it would seem absolutely real. And, uh, he kind of envisioned this, uh, sort of display having a, a head mounted display or mm-hmm. HMD, which, mm-hmm. uh, one of those big clunky helmet things that fits over your head and then that provides you all the visual and, and audio that you need. Um, and that uh, it would also incorporate sound and, and touch uh, to make this big picture. Sure. So that was kind of his idea. And in a way, he's sort of like the grandfather of virtual reality. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll skip ahead. So this idea never fades away. People always keep it in mind. And and in certain uses, uh, it, it comes to play, like in, in uh, military uses in particular, mm-hmm. um, things like uh, creating – putting a camera on the outside of a plane – and uh, and hooking it up to a head-mounted display within the plane, so that a, a, a person in the plane can look around and see and help someone, like the pilot, land the plane because they can they have a view directly beneath it, for example, that kind of thing. Sure, and they even have weapon systems that use that kind of technology, sure. where uh, the your the camera controls the uh, the weapon, so that when the pilot turns his or her head, they can look at a target and the gun is already pointed right at whatever it is that they're looking at. Right, right. So so the military drove a lot of this early innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, other scientists were saying, hey, there's some really cool things we could use this 
to do, but it's hard to get funding because you have to convince people that it's it's a worthwhile endeavor. Sure. Uh, to that end, one in the late '80s, that's when the term virtual reality started to come into play, and the media picked up on it, and that's when you had an explosion. Particularly in the early 90s. That's when the media really went nuts with this term virtual reality. And part of the problem was that they built up, the, they being the media, built up this, this vision of this amazing virtual world that we would all get to go and play in. And we, you know, the, the, there were no limitations. You could have all the information at your fingertips. You could have, uh, you could live out your wildest fantasies in this virtual environment. Holodeck. Holodeck, essentially, yes. Good, good Star Trek, the next generation reference. Although, as we all know, if you go into the holodeck, something will go wrong and Moriarty will try to kill you. That's true. But anyway, yeah, exactly though. The, the next generation kind of take on virtual reality was sort of what the media was playing this up to be to the point where people were really excited and it sounded like it was just right around the corner and that any minute now we'd be able to put on some sort of suit and be able to experience things like, I, I've always wondered what it would be like to, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, sled down a huge icy mountain and I could do this safely in my own home and I would have all the feeling and, and the experience of doing that. But I, I, in reality, I'd just take the suit off. I'd be in my living room. I'd be perfectly safe. Or I've always wanted to pretend like I'm some sort of a, a super soldier, even though I'm a pudgy computer guy. I want to put on this suit and, and go out there and, and do a, a high risk mission and see what that's really like. But the reality was sadly lagging quite a bit behind this media perception. In fact, the chasm was enormous mm -hmm. between what the media was saying or what they were kind of promising and what the reality could actually produce. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if – did you ever get to do a virtual reality game at all? No, I've never played a virtual reality okay, game. OK. Well, children, sit back. Jonathan's going to tell you a little story. Whoa. The year was 1991. Yeah, I was uh, – I was in high school uh, in 1991, and um, there was a mall that was not too far from my house, uh, the Gwinnett Place Mall. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's, Been there. Yeah. It's different now. Mm -hmm. But back then, they had a, a, a small business, and the only thing the small business did was it essentially rented out time on virtual reality games. Mm -hmm. You would go and you'd pay a certain amount to get uh, five minutes of playtime in this virtual reality game. And the game, by the way, the, the main game they had was Dactyl Nightmare. And um, it was odd. So it was like a thumb? No, chasing not, no, it, was a, it was supposed to be a pterodactyl. Oh, But they just called it Dactyl. Okay. Dactyl Nightmare. So you would play with other people, I think up to three other people, so four-player game, and uh, you had a little control that you would hold in your hands that would represent a gun in the game. Uh -huh. And you had a head-mounted display you'd wear, and you would be um, you'd, you'd be inside the – you'd stand on a little pedestal that had a little guard around it so you wouldn't you know, fall off. And you had a control on the handle of the, the, the little controller you had. You had a button that would control movement. You could just move forward. So whichever way you faced, you push the button. That's the way you would go. And then you had a, a trigger where you could fire a, the slowest moving bullet you've ever seen <laughs> at your opponent. Slower than in the Matrix? Okay. Second slowest <laughs> bullet you've ever seen. And, uh, and so – and occasionally a pterodactyl would come down and pick you up and drop you. <laughs> which, All right. which was a good way to, for you to lose a life. Not that impressive, I got to tell you. Not um, 
not impressive really at all. It was actually a big letdown compared to what you're thinking you know, virtual reality is really going to be like. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the case across the board. You had all these people try these games out and other applications. Right. And they were so primitive in comparison to what everyone thought of, thought virtual reality was really going to be like, the bottom fell out. Mm-hmm. Funding for virtual reality projects kind of dropped out because people just lost interest. It's just like sort of the same problem NASA has with the space program. Mm -hmm. If there's not a lot of interest in it, they have trouble funding the program. Same thing for virtual reality. So it actually got to the point where people began to hate the term virtual reality because it had the stigma attached to it. Right. Which is why you don't really hear the term now. Mm-hmm. Now you hear virtual environments. Right. Right? It's the same sort of thing. It's a little bit more of a broad definition than virtual reality was. But in general, you're talking about the same stuff. It's just a different name. And the reason behind it is because virtual reality just became such a, a, a loaded term. Right. So there you go. That's what happened to virtual reality. Well, then. But I've heard the term virtual environment applied to things like Second Life. Right. Or Google Lively or Sony Home. Right. Yeah. That's, that's where the broad definition comes in. So, you know, because you don't have to wear special equipment to do that. Although you can. Yeah. There are people who do. Uh, I'm sure. <laughs> no, uh, that's the thing is that virtual environment is a more broad definition. And right. So essentially any, any computer environment you create in a way is a virtual environment, right? Um, but the way that the term is being used within the industry, the old VR industry, uh, you need a little bit more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, the main concept for virtual environments in this industry is called immersion. Right. Now, immersion immersion is that feeling you get where the environment you're in seems real to you. Right. Okay. So uh, now ideally you get to the point where you feel that the environment you're in is as real as the physical environment your body is in. And, sure. And in the perfect example, you would even forget about your physical body entirely. You would just concentrate on the virtual one, mm-hmm. and that would be real to you. Um, now, the interesting thing here is that immersion does not depend solely upon the the, the graphics quality of the program mm-hmm. or, um, or even the sound quality. Uh, it really depends on how interactive is this environment. Right. Um, how when you turn your head is there any latency latency is is the delay between an action and the uh the way the computer shows it to you so like if you turn your head and there's a slight delay it's very disconcerting and it ruins the immersion experience yeah because you're no longer being fooled into the idea that you are somewhere else exactly it, that's an artifact of real life it kind of makes you feel like you're maybe slightly drunk or drugged or something. And in fact, can lead you to motion sickness. It's called cyber sickness. All right. Um, in virtual reality terms. But yeah, it can really, it can disorient you because, you know, your, your brain is telling you, Hey, I'm looking to the right, but my view is lagging behind my actual actions. It's interesting because in virtual reality studies, they found out that the human eye and mind can perceive a delay of as short as 50 milliseconds. Hmm. Which is that's an incredible fraction of a second, and you sure. can detect it. So that's a big challenge: is is decreasing that delay so that it becomes imperceptible. Um, but that that can lead to immersion. Mm-hmm. Also, things like uh, haptic feedback, sure, which you know all about because you you edited the how haptics work, right? 
That's true. Um, haptic feedback is essentially anything that makes you feel like you're actually touching something. Right. So, um, that can be, uh, anything like, um, their, their medical devices that are used to actually do surgery. Right. Um, or, uh, to train people who are doctors and that gives them haptic feedback. So, I mean, really, if you're controlling a robotic arm, with the use of this this mechanical equipment, electronic mechanical equipment, um, you know, a robot is going to be, you know, it's not going to have any feeling to it. It's going to just, you know, slice into whatever's around, you know, without being discriminatory, other than what happens to be on the camera that the uh, that the doctor is looking at. Right. And uh, there are some pretty subtle nuances, you know, depending on whether you're cutting muscle or whatever. So. The doctor needs to be able to feel that to know exactly what's going on as he or she is working. So these haptic devices, you know, provide some sensory feedback to them, some tactile feedback so that they can go, okay, you know, I need to go just this far and no farther to, right. to you know, complete like this surgery. Increasing amounts of resistance, that kind of thing. Right. And there are, um, there are still different kinds of devices that, uh, that you can use. You can put on gloves that have, uh, different little motors and, uh, vibrating modules in there to give you the sense that you are touching things. They, they resist your fingers so that you make, it makes your hand feel as you close it that you are holding, for example, a ball. Right. Um, because it is holding back your hand to, to, you know, give it that feeling that, oh, there's something there. Right, you know, right. because you you actually uh, can feel it, and these things are you know some of them are quite large, um, so you know you may be putting on some some pretty large gloves, but it's got uh, a sensation, gives you the sensation that you are actually touching something, and it adds to that perception that you are in another world. Yeah, and I, I at CES uh, Consumer yes. Electronics Showcase, I actually tried on some stuff that that had haptic feedback um, uh, devices built into them. Mm-hmm. There was a there was a vest. That you could wear. The, yes, it was designed for first-person shooters. Okay, so that when so you, you got shot, right, it would. Uh, they had little air bladders in them, oh. and the air bladder would inflate suddenly, and thus you would feel an impact against your skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and because the vest was so tight, it was uh, you know it had to be because otherwise you wouldn't really sense this. Um, but it meant that you felt it. It was. It was not something you could ignore. Yes. (laughs) They also had a helmet that did the same sort of thing. And, um, and that's the, here comes another interesting part about virtual environments and the research that goes into them. Uh huh. Because it's still hard to get funding for these things, they often appropriate devices that were designed for other industries and, and apply them to virtual environments. So the video game industry in particular is huge when it comes to this sort of stuff. Uh, they'll, you know, people who, who design virtual environments will actively seek out devices in the, in the video game industry that they can then repurpose for virtual environments. So things like this kind of vest, which would let you feel impact, that could become in handy in a virtual environment, it really helps with the immersion. Mm-hmm. So when you see something happen to your virtual self, Within a world, and usually this is in a first-person view because that helps with immersion. It, it's, when you do third-person, you don't really you still have a sense of a, a detachment. Sure, but when you see something coming at you and then you feel the impact through something like this, it it definitely reinforces that sense of immersion. Well, the uh, the video game industry is all about immersion and right. virtual environments. Exactly, and uh, you know, as we were as you were talking, I was just thinking of an obvious analogy. It would be the flight simulator. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the 
flight simulator. I can't even say simulator. That's lovely. The flight simulator nice. that that you <laughs> that you play on your desktop is very uh, similar to the the kind of machine that they used to to train pilots in. Right, and that was um, actually a very early application of virtual environments. Again, sure. we're going back go to the in military. The yeah. yeah, but well, the airlines use them, and mm-hmm. of course, the uh, there's a uh, simulator for the space shuttle, I believe. Yep. Um, and there were for the uh, the Mercury capsules, even and the uh, yep. the Gemini. Jiminy. Capitals. <laughs> yeah, it's Gemini. I don't care what the astronauts say. <laughs> but they said it. I know they said it. All right. I'm still saying Gemini. Okay. But they, they were using, uh, virtual environments to, to do some training too. So those are, those are things that, uh, that the public might have actually seen that they might be aware of. And, and there's yeah. some, there's some uses that are going on right now that the public might be aware of. Um, depending on, sadly, a lot of it's, uh, sadly in the sense that it's not a fun application. It's, it's a, a good application of virtual environments, but medical applications besides the, the telepresence and surgery that you sure. were talking mm-hmm. about. Um, one of the useful, uh, ways you can incorporate virtual environments in treatment, um, involves psychological treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, there are experiments being run at, at Duke University and Emory University, where doctors are using virtual environments to simulate situations where patients with phobias can can kind of confront their fear um, in a way that ultimately they know they're perfectly safe. Ultimately, they know they're inside a doctor's office and they don't ha- they're not actually confronting what it is they're afraid of. But because the sense of immersion is a powerful one, their bodies react the same way they would if they were actually encountering their real fear. For example, uh, fear of heights. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are a psychologist and you're, or a psychiatrist and you're treating someone for a fear of heights and you happen to have an office in a one-story building, your options for treating this patient are, are become pretty rough when it comes to actually you know, confronting the fear head on. Mm-hmm. It means you have to go to a different building. You have to, you know, you may have to secure permission to go to a certain floor or anything like that. Um, virtual environments, you could create an environment where you appear to be at the top of a tall building and you can walk right up to the edge virtually and look down. And the interesting thing is after a couple of minutes where you're kind of get oriented, patients have shown the same physical reaction to the virtual environment as they would if they were in a real one. Wow. And that using this as sort of a, um, a kind of therapy where they get used to it over a period of time, they can uh, they can really make a lot of progress. In fact, some psychi- psychiatrists and psychologists have, have reported that their patients come back and say, hey, you know, after we went through these sessions, I took it upon myself to go to this hotel downtown that's got, you know, it's a 15 story hotel. And I went all the way to the top and I walked all the way to the window and, you know, I was really scared and I was really nervous, but I did it. And it's amazing because without this treatment, they would never have taken that kind of initiative. No, sure. So that's kind of an interesting approach. There are other ones as well. Um, fear of flying is a common one. Mm-hmm. It's also being used for people who have, uh, um, uh, you know, veterans who are coming back who have, have problems afterwards, you know, Right. That's that's a big use for them. Sure. So it's it's that's that's kind of where a lot of the funding's going into now because it is a, a an application that you can see direct results from. So what if you fear fear itself? <sighs> nice. <laughs> um, yeah, that one that one that one's tricky. Yeah, I, I would imagine so. At least to uh, to replicate in, in a virtual environment. 
Yeah. Oh, I, I wanted to talk about one other thing since we, we did talk about haptics earlier. Sure. Um, I wanted to talk about passive haptics, which is kind of unique oh, right. to virtual environments. Mm-hmm. Passive haptics are when you incorporate real objects and you connect them to the virtual world. So usually in this case, your, your virtual environment actually requires that you have a room where the – uh, a lot of the uh, the the images you'll see are projected on on maybe the floor and the walls and the ceiling, and you're wearing special glasses to complete the right. illusion. But you you put in real physical objects that are mapped to this virtual environment, and if you, as a person in the physical environment, interact with these, you see that reflected in the virtual environment. Mm-hmm. Again, reinforces that sense of immersion. It's pretty right. cool, you know. So like you see a ball and you push it. Uh, you would actually feel the ball because there really is a ball there right? and you'd see it move. The other neat thing about this is that you can trick the mind mm-hmm. and create an environment that's much larger than the physical environment, a virtual environment that's that's many times larger than the physical one. Mm-hmm. Um, you can trick the mind into thinking you're walking in a straight line and really the if you were to be an independent observer, you would see that the person inside the room is walking in a circle. But in the virtual environment, it would look like you're walking in a straight line. Right. So in a way, you've just created a room that's larger on the inside than it is on the outside. Ooh. (laughs) You can tell that I'm kind of fascinated by virtual environments and reality and the technology behind it. You know, I was thinking, though, that uh, there are some some holdovers from it. Um, You know, talking about CES, I remember the uh, MyView personal uh, video player that they have. Um, it kind of looks like a very small version of the, uh, the headgear that you used to see in the virtual reality, um, stuff. But basically what it is, is, um, it's a, when I say personal video player, it's literally a pair of glasses that you put on your, you know, put on your face and it plays, you know, hooks up to your personal video player and plays the movie or the, the video podcast or whatever on the lenses of your glasses. So you're actually watching, you know, you're, it's sort of a mini immersion. Type right. thing sure. because you're, sure. you're showing yourself that, um, and I, you remember the old uh, virtual Game Boy oh, where you put I? the glasses I can on. Still, still feel those headaches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, that, they had a problem with latency. Yeah, IMAX. You know, sure. there are all kinds of, of things that are just reality. Yeah. I mean, you've got uh, there, there's a new camera that actually will tag things mm-hmm. that you see in real life. It'll tag it and remember it and, and upload it and share it. Um, where you could point a camera at a building and push this little button and it'll pop up and tell you what that building is. Oh, sure. I mean, that's same sort of thing. These are all these applications that came out of the research from virtual reality. Yeah. So there, it still exists. There's yeah. just bits and pieces of it incorporated into different materials. Right. And, right. So it's, uh, it's pretty interesting it's really stuff. No, it's not, not gone. It's just maybe gone underground and sort of assimilated into a way where you wouldn't necessarily recognize it immediately. <laughs> it's, it's cool stuff. And, uh, well, I guess that's a, a good, nice, long conversation about virtual reality. But if, if you want to learn more, we have a whole suite on virtual reality and how stuff works. A good place to start is how virtual reality works. Who to thunk it? There you go. That's live right now at HowStuffWorks.com, and we'll talk to you again soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?